Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Reading this morning from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Passages like chapter 1, 1 and 2 Thessalonians are very, very relevant to people in Brunei, people in Nepal, people in Afghanistan. It is very relevant to those who find themselves in a context of persecution, It's a word that's being given by the Apostle Paul to a church in affliction. That word is hold fast in affliction. Jesus Christ is coming soon. We have all passed guardrails on the road, day in and day out. The guardrails are a very important safety feature on a highway. Their primary purpose is to provide a layer of protection for motorists who have drifted off the road. Sometimes, however, things can go terribly wrong. The guardrails that are on the road guide us in our destination. When we breach those rails, we place ourselves in jeopardy. The guardrails in our passage are the melodic line of the book. Both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians have as their melodic line, holding fast in affliction, Jesus is coming. In this particular text, in verse 5, The Bible reads, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. In our text, the Apostle Paul encourages the believers in Thessalonica that the righteous king will one day return and set all things right. A day of reckoning is coming. You and I in our own culture read this a certain way, but if we were in Afghanistan or we were in Brunei where there is open opposition and persecution and martyrdom, this text comes as a word of comfort and encouragement. 
When Jesus returns, he will set all things right. Let us pray. Our Father, this morning we gather as your people in this place. There are many emotional distractions that pull and tug at our attention. We take all of these anxieties, all of these worries, all of these concerns, and we lay them at your feet. We bring them as prayers for help. We know that the throne we approach is one of grace, and we find help in our time of need. Thus, we ask for this help. Father, we pray for those things that we have said or done that have been good or bad. We ask that we would release them and we would let them go. Perhaps we have received word. Perhaps we have had things done that have affected us adversely, that have caused us to feel poorly. May we let them go. We thank you, Father, for this passage that reminds us that you are righteous and one day you will fix all that is broken in our world. We believe in the bodily resurrection of all humanity, the saved to eternal life and the unsaved to everlasting punishment, even as this passage tells us. And both of those ideas are to be for us an encouragement. We ask for this morning's study. Holy Spirit, guide us in your truth. May our eyes see, may our ears hear, may our hearts feel you in our midst. We ask this through the intercessory ministries of both the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. When you look at our passage, we know that there is a primary idea. It's referencing the return of the righteous king. Jesus is coming again. That return is eminent, and that was a word to this church that was being afflicted. Paul uses very inflated speech, very pungent speech. He speaks of persecution, of afflictions, of suffering. And he says to that church, to those people, release is coming. He equally says to those people, God will repay those who have afflicted you with the affliction with which they have afflicted you. A day of reckoning is coming. And when God comes, the judgment executed both on the believing and the unbelieving will be righteous. It will be just. It will be thorough. In my Bible, I have certain divisions stated. In chapter 1, you have verses 1 and 2, which are introductory. And then in verses 3 and 4, you have this opening statement of thanksgiving. Paul references the church, if you note in verse 3, it says, growing abundantly. In verse 3, it speaks of one another is increasing. Then he speaks of in all your persecutions and in all your, your afflictions that you are enduring. Paul speaks of the church as a growing church, an increasing church, uh, as an enduring church. And this church was holding fast in affliction. And what Paul then says to this church is keep going, don't quit, stay the course. These are the things that you are currently enduring. And he wants to offer them a word of encouragement, a word of hope. And he says that in this text. We've tried to note how 1st and 2nd Thessalonians are really saying the same thing. Hold fast in affliction. There are different questions that are being addressed or asked, and the Apostle Paul is speaking into those situations. You'll remember that the Apostle Paul sends Timothy back to find out how they're doing. When he returns, the word he brings is one of encouragement. They're doing great. And Paul then speaks to the concerns that were brought up to Timothy and now the Apostle. In chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, Paul addresses the question as to what happens to those who have preceded us in death or perhaps have been martyred. 
Are they going to miss out? Will they be reunited with us when Jesus comes? Paul's answer is yes. Paul then expands on that idea in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 when he says, when that day comes, for the unbeliever will come as a thief in the night. It's going to catch them unaware. He also says, but you be encouraged. Be encouraged and build one another up with that truth. Now in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, he continues that thought of second coming. We have seen how in 1 Thessalonians, every chapter ends with a word concerning the coming of Jesus Christ. In 2 Thessalonians, there's a dominant idea. He says, when Jesus comes, he shall afflict those who afflict you. He then says in chapter 2, this day of judgment has not yet come. You've not missed out. And then in chapter 3, he says, here's what you do in the in-between until Jesus comes. Pastor Giles addressed that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Here's how we as a church are to be conducting ourselves while we wait for the soon return of Jesus Christ. Well, in 2 Thessalonians, he stresses this idea of Jesus coming. And when he comes, first, uh, 2 Thessalonians as well as 1, speaks of one coming. The one coming has two aspects. When he comes, he will relieve those who have been afflicted, and he will repay those who have afflicted. He judges the believing and the unbelieving, and we'll see how that judgment plays out in this chapter. But he stresses this idea. And think about to whom he writes. Let's say we are in Brunei, and we are being persecuted for our faith in Christ. We read 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and what does that text tell us? That a day of relief is coming. One day, when Jesus comes, we will be saved from our affliction. Amen? But he also says to the church of Brunei, those people who right now are afflicting you, who do not obey the gospel, they will be thoroughly punished with an eternal punishment. And why? Because God is just. And when they heard that, and when they hear this, they are to be encouraged. That one day, Jesus is returning. And when he does, he will set all things right, both for the believing and for the unbelieving. Notice in chapter 1, verse 7, our text says, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed. That word revealed is a common word in the biblical text. We know it because of Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, when it speaks of the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the apocalypsis. It's the revealing, this idea of apocalypse. Apocalypse carries the idea of revelation, of revealing. That word occurs several times in the New Testament. I've cited that for us on the wall. The dark print is where it speaks specifically to his return. The light print simply speaks of a revealing, but not his revealing. So when we talk about the revelation of Jesus Christ, we are talking about a revealing. When Jesus Christ returns, this text says it will be an apocalypse. And when he does come, it says inside this text, there will be a consequence both to the believing and to the unbelieving. If you read 1 Thessalonians and then 2 Thessalonians as a single letter, which indeed it is, he's simply carrying on the thought he began in 1 Thessalonians. What he speaks of in chapter 4 in 1 Thessalonians, what he speaks of in chapter 5 in 1 Thessalonians, and now what he speaks of in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 are all the same coming. 
when he comes, a coming which is eminent, it'll have consequences to two people groups, the believing and the unbelieving. For the believing, there is relief. That's the wording of the text. And for the unbelieving, there is a repayment. But let's begin with this idea of relief or rest found within the text. There are five statements made within the paragraph. And here's what's interesting about our paragraph. It isn't as, as if Paul gives us five statements and he goes to the three statements concerning the unbeliever. He intermingles both of these ideas together. There is this single coming and that single coming has these two aspects or consequences. And I'm simply clumping them together for the purpose of clarity, hopefully clarity. But there are five consequences to the believing or at least five truths or ideas that encourage us in the present concerning this coming. The first thing concerning this coming is found in verse 5. Notice, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. This idea of judgment means that God is going to assess or evaluate the situation when he returns. And the outcome of that assessment will be toward the believer and the unbeliever. And the word righteous in verse 5 is the same word for justification. There is this accurate, whole, genuine, right assessment when Jesus comes. It is difficult at times to thoroughly or genuinely assess a situation because we don't know everything that has gone into it. But God does. God knows exactly. And when he does come, he will make a righteous judgment, an accurate, a whole assessment of the situation. And several things are true concerning this judgment. The first is this. His assessment of what is happening is often far different than ours. To whom does he write? He writes to a church that is being afflicted. He writes to a church that is suffering. He writes to a church that is being persecuted. And somehow in that, God is just. God is right. We sometimes look at persecution or suffering as something that is foreign to the Christian experience, and yet it is part of what it means to be a citizen of his kingdom. The suffering, the persecution, the affliction. It is often far different than our own assessment. And the second thing we see in verse 5, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Because God is a just God, a righteous God, our present suffering is part of kingdom compatibility. And again, that seems foreign to us because we are, we are not suffering as Christians. As a whole, we are not in the United States of America. You understand that. One of the healthiest things I think we do on a Sunday morning is that we pray for the persecuted church. When Pastor Giles stood up here and read that paragraph concerning the Christians in Brunei, they are suffering. They are being persecuted. They are being afflicted. They are dying for their faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And they need to know that that affliction, that persecution, that suffering is kingdom compatibility. It's not making them worthy of the kingdom. It's because they are citizens of that kingdom that they suffer. And they need to know that. Inside of our text, you have these strong, powerful words, persecutions, afflictions, suffering, 
affliction, afflicted. This is what they were experiencing. We will see in just a moment when Jesus comes, he is going to take that and afflict those who afflict you with the affliction with which they afflicted you. The tables will indeed be turned. Now, why is this such a big deal that we understand as a church, even though we ourselves are not necessarily corporately or as a whole, as a community being persecuted, why is it necessary for us to understand this idea? Well, we think and we hear that suffering is something unusual or exceptional, when in reality it is to be expected. All that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. In Acts chapter 14, verse 22, the Apostle Paul makes the statement, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying, through many tribulations. It's the same word that the Apostle uses in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 for afflictions. Through many afflictions, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 and following. Listen to verse 28. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. That is not how we assess suffering. And Paul says the same thing in Philippians as he says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 experiencing the same conflict with which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Remember in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul says, you have become imitators of me. In what way were they imitating him in his suffering? 1 Thessalonians 3, 3. So that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. This is what he says to the suffering church. Don't be disturbed. God is not unhappy with you. God is not punishing you for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this for indeed when we were with you we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction and so it came to pass as you know and then finally second timothy chapter 3 verses 10 through 12 now you followed my teaching conduct purpose faith patience love perseverance persecutions and sufferings just as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. He rescued Paul in them, not from them. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Then we read our passage in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4-7, through 7, and Paul uses such words as persecution, afflictions, suffering, affliction, afflict, afflicted. And the word afflicted is the word tribulation, troubled. Paul uses these incredibly intense and graphic words to describe not just their affliction, but what awaits the unbelieving. And so the Apostle Paul says that what we often experience is far different. Our assessment of it is very different than God's assessment. And that our present suffering is part of kingdom compatibility. And for us, that might appear foreign, but to the suffering church, this is a word of encouragement. The third thing we see inside the text concerning the believing is that because God is just, because he is righteous, 
He will give relief to those who are afflicted. In verse 7 of our text, notice what it says, and to grant relief or rest to you who are afflicted. In many ways, this is an already not yet. He speaks of our ultimate relief when Jesus comes, when Jesus is revealed. But there is a genuine sense in which in the present we find relief. For the church that suffers in Thessalonica, knowing that one day God will correct what is broken, is a comfort. There's rest in knowing that God will set things right. God guarantees that one day you will be relieved. You will find ultimate rest. He promises that to these people. We suffer in the affliction. The fourth thing we see, which is absolutely incredible, because God is just, because he is righteous, his timetable is different than our timetable. When do we want him to come? (laughs) We're no different than the first century church. I would think that the people of Brunei, or in South Korea, North Korea rather, in India and all of many regions of the world, are passionately praying for the soon return of Jesus Christ. And this text tells them, be encouraged. Jesus is coming. Those who have preceded you through martyrdom will be reunited with you when Jesus comes. When Jesus comes, it will come as a thief in the night, but in that day, he will set the record straight. Be encouraged. You will be released. Notice how this passage reads. It says in verse 7, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those, justice, on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel. I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. But God's timetable is different than our timetable. The day is coming. You'll remember in our study in James, James is one of the first books written, James, Galatians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians. James reminds his audience that the judge is standing at the door. He's perched and ready to come. He's leaning over the edge. He's just looking at the father, waiting for the nod, and he's ready to go. And when he does, he'll set all things right. How long has it been since then? 2,000 years. From our vantage point, we think, man, you know, it's in massive slow-mo. We're wanting him to take the leap. Let's get this thing going. The same is true with First and Second Thessalonians. They're believing in the imminent return of Jesus. And yet he waits. God's timetable is very different than ours. But when he does come from heaven with the angels of his power in flaming fire, when he comes, he will set all things right as a consequence of that coming. Look at verse 10. It says... In verse 10, when he comes on that day, notice what will happen, to be glorified in his saints. I didn't turn to Ephesians because of time. But it says in Ephesians that when Jesus comes, the church is going to be one of these trophies of grace. God will be glorified because of what he has chosen to do to us, in us, and through us, to those around us. He's going to do it. And when the cosmic world sees what God has done in redeeming people like us, 
they will marvel. They will marvel. They will be glorified in the church. The church will be a means through which God is glorified, but they will equally be marveled by the church. And the word marveled is this idea of having your jaw drop. It is impossible for us to fully comprehend or understand the magnitude of what we're dealing with when we talk about Jesus, redemption, judgment. When you and I walk into his presence, we will be awestruck by what we have experienced. When you get to heaven, one of the greatest marvels you will experience is the fact that you're there. Wow. What did I do to deserve this? Nothing. And you'll walk into his presence, you'll be reunited with all those who have preceded you in death, and you're just going to... It's a breath-grabbing moment. We will view with glad astonishment and grateful wonder. Wow. Wow. When you read a passage like this, it's interesting how the apostle weaves these two thoughts or ideas together. At the apocalypse, at the revealing of Jesus, he's going to bring relief to those who are being afflicted. It'll be a day, a great day of relief. But there's also a repayment It says in verse 6, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Verse 8, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. That's what you and I as the people of God marvel at, the glory. And that's what they will be excluded from. There is coming a day when God will repay those who have not believed the gospel. When you and I read this text, there's a a potential tension that we do not fully, for a lack of a better word, appreciate what's taking place. Just as we cannot imagine what it will be like for us when Jesus comes, we can equally not imagine what it will be like for them who disobeyed the gospel. This text uses words that we struggle with. When we think of inflicting vengeance, when we speak of affliction or suffering the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Three Profound statements are made in this text concerning the unbelieving. The first is that God, being just and righteous, will repay with affliction those who afflict his people. The word repay in our text is found in Romans 12, 19 and Hebrews 10, 30. In Romans 12, 19, it says, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourself, but rather give place Unto wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. God's the one who will correct the books. Hebrews 10.30 says, for we know him that hath said, vengeance belongs unto me, I will repay, I will recompense, says the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. And then 10.31 says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. 
And indeed it is. Romans 2, verses 5 through 11, and James 5, 3, both use this idea that God will punish the unbeliever proportionate to his crime. It says in verse 5 of Romans 2, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath. In James 5, 3, it says, your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. That word storing up in Romans 2.5 and treasure in James 5.3 is our English word thesaurus. It's this idea of storing up. It's this well house, this storehouse of words. Well, the unbeliever is storing up judgment. And the day of its execution and outpouring is coming. And it comes when Jesus returns. Because God is just, he will deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice how graphically it gives us this contrast. In 1 Thessalonians 4, it says, we do not grieve like those who have no hope. We are the people of hope. We are the people of hope. But there are those who have no hope That's the contrast between us and them. When you read in our text, verse 8, it says that he is going to inflict vengeance. He's going to repay those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior from sin and death, then this is what awaits you. And this sentence against you is just. It is righteous. What does it mean to know God? What does it mean to obey the gospel? The scripture provides for us two word pictures, which I think are graphic and they're powerful in their simplicity. In John chapter 1, verse 12, it says, But as many as received him, to them gave he right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. The gospel is a gift received. Romans 6, 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Now, most of us have become very familiar with that vocabulary. God in Christ provides for us a means of deliverance, a way to answer the sin question. At some point in time, we came to understand that we cannot save ourselves, but God can and Jesus did. And he offered to us a gift. And what did we do? We simply received it. We took it. We believed that what God said concerning us and himself is true. We took it. But not only is the gospel a gift received, it's an object believed. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So we know that the Bible, that the gospel is a gift received. It is an object believed. Acts 16.31, they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Believe in Jesus. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. 
If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Those verses should be very familiar to us as people, but we become comfortable with the familiar. And yet, that's all we're saying to the unbeliever, is that there is a way to escape this divine vengeance, this eternal punishment. And it's in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Accept him, and you can be saved. The gospel is truly that simple. The gospel is a gift received, and it is an object believed. There is, however, a third thing stated in our text, and he's using synonymous parallelism. He says in verse 9, and again, consider the graphic nature of the language, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. And I, I believe they're all synonymous insofar that when it says in our text, inflicting vengeance, afflicted, eternal destruction, they all culminate with this idea that they are away from the presence of the Lord. They are away from the presence of the Lord. Because God is just, the unbelieving will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. The word pay in verse 9 they will suffer the punishment away from the presence and from the glory of his might. This idea of repay, excuse me, that's found in verse 6. It comes from the same word of righteous and of just. The price or payment of the penalty will be right. It will be just. And what will happen in that day is that they will be removed from the presence of God. When you and I speak of heaven or we speak of hell, we are using a word that speaks of a very broad idea. If we were to ask you the question, if you have a loved one who believes in Jesus and they have preceded you in death, where are they right now? We would say they are in heaven. We try not to entertain the opposite. But they are in heaven or they are in hell. Right now that word captures a whole host of ideas. The primary idea, however, of heaven is that you are going to be in the presence of the Lord. What happens after that, I think, is a big deal, but not as big a deal as being in the presence of the Lord. The opposite, however, is true, and that's what this text is telling us. If you do not obey the gospel and you do not know God, you will be removed from the presence of God. And just as it is impossible for us to understand the magnitude of what it means to be in the presence of God, are you with me on that? It is equally incomprehensible for us to understand what it means to be removed from the presence of God. And yet that's how Paul describes the judgment on the unbelieving. We cannot begin to fathom the horror of this statement. All that you and I enjoy as a result of his common grace will be gone. The smelling of a fragrant flower, the tantalizing taste of a delicious meal, or a double bacon cheeseburger. The soft touch of a baby's behind, lying on your back in the field of green, gazing up into the sky of blue. All this will be gone. The capacity to be moved emotionally by a single strain of music or the flight of one's mind in the reading of a good book, all this will be gone. 
the restraining of evil, the expressions of good government, the common decency toward one another's neighbor, all this will be gone. No longer will God be working in your will to do according to his good pleasure. No longer will there be the wooing of the Holy Spirit. No longer will Jesus Christ invite the weary to come to him for their rest. All that will be gone. You will truly be, for the very first time in your life, removed forever from God. And you will finally get what you deserve. You will finally have justice. The text ends by saying the price of this unbelief is separation from the glory of his power. When you are separated from the glory of his power, you will not be in the place where he wipes away every tear from your eye. You will not be in the place where death no longer exists. You will not be in the place where there is no longer any mourning or crying or pain. You will not be in the place where the city is pure gold like clear glass. You will not be in the place where the streets are pure gold like transparent glass. You will not be in the place where there is no day or night for God is the light of that place. You will not be in the place where there is no unclean thing. You will not be in the place where there will no longer be any curse. All this is the price you will pay for not knowing God, for not obeying the gospel. But the opposite is equally true for us. And that is the word that Paul preaches to the Thessalonians to encourage them in their affliction. A day of reckoning is coming. Do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Have you said in your heart, I can't, but God can, and Jesus did? Have you accepted his work in your behalf? If you have, then you will be in his presence. But if you haven't, then we as a family invite you to come to Jesus. It is our prayer that your heart, your eyes, your mind would be opened and that you would see who you are and then see who he is and you would be saved. How wonderful that would be if today was that day. Paul ends this chapter with a prayer. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. It's still all about God. So that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Please stand with me as we close in prayer. Father, there is no mortal who is sufficient to communicate such things. But this is your word. It is your spirit. We are only tools, vessels, means through which you communicate such things. And both thoughts are almost impossible to grasp that one day when you come back, we will be with you and every wrong will be righted. Every absence will be made full. And we will be reunited with those who have preceded us in death, who know Jesus as their Savior from sin and death. And Father, we recognize the horribleness of the opposite. We have loved ones who have not obeyed the gospel. We have children whom we are not quite sure if they understand whether or not they are sinners and Jesus is their only Savior. We have a world that needs Jesus. 
Father, help us to be mindful of who we are in Christ and what they are without him. And Father, may that control us as we communicate to an unbelieving world just how much God does indeed love them. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity we have as your people to be gathered in this place, free of outside harassment and persecution. May we leverage our opportunity to preach Christ to our community, to our neighbors, to our friends, family, co-workers, and to this world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.